Hello and welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Our entire mission is to help you live on purpose, with purpose, and connect to the exact work that God has prepared for you and called for you to do. And I want to let everybody know out there that my book, you might have heard about it, it's coming out April 27th. It's called On Purpose, With Purpose, Discovering Your Best Life Now. And I would love for you to be a part of our launch team. We want to create a movement because here's here's what I believe. You know, we all hear about the why, the what, and the how. But what is absolutely foundational, what has to precede being able to connect to that, including our purpose and everything else, our calling is who we are. Not who we see in the mirror, but who God made us to be. And this book is about that entire journey. We're getting incredible feedback. So here's what happens. I'll just make this quick. Join the launch team. You just go to beyondinfluence.com forward slash book. You're going to get a free copy, a digital copy of the book. It's normally $16.99 when it's going to be on Amazon. Uh, you're going to get access to some uh, some of my courses. We got some great surprises. Also, the only thing I'd like you to do as part of the launch team is just order a copy of the book, lead us a review, and share some of the stuff that we're going to be putting on social media. So we just want to make an impact out there. So please join the On Purpose With Purpose launch team. And as a part of that circle of champions, we got some other great stuff uh, in store for you. So with that, we are uh, we have a great episode for you coming up next. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Dad Edge Podcast. I'm Larry Hagner, your host and founder of this show. Welcome to the last Thursday throwdown of April. Can you believe we're already almost halfway through the year? So pretty cool stuff, man. And I'm excited to bring today's guest on. As you guys know, we have been blessed here at Dad Edge to have a variety of different guests on the show. Absolutely amazing. We just featured Chris Gardner from The Pursuit of Happiness. Actually, uh, buckle your seatbelt because next week we have Matthew McConaughey coming on. How about that? Just an absolutely amazing show where he talks about fatherhood, how he was raised, how he was brought up. Also, his brand new book on green lights. Well, not on green lights, but his new book, Green Lights, which is fantastic. It's literally in my top three now of all time favorite books. Uh, I've got another incredible guest for you guys today. And before I do his intro, I just want to give you guys a quick blurb and a few announcements of just things that we have out there for you. So if this is your first time here, this is one of three shows that I do every single week. This is Thursday Throwdown. Wednesdays is our live Q&A and Mondays is we're always interviewing somebody on that particular show, usually a bit of a longer show as well. Before I get into my guest today, I also want to share with you guys, go check us out on YouTube. We grow by almost 150 subscribers per day. So if you want to check out any podcast we've done, any interview we've done, along with just some inspirational videos of what it means to be a husband, man, and father, go check us out over on YouTube. I'll have a link for the show notes for that as well. Also, you've heard me talk about our brand new resource for you guys who are married. And just to kind of illustrate and demonstrate some scary statistics out there, we all know that in the U.S. there is a divorce rate of 50%. 50% now, which is absolutely crazy. What you might not know is the 50% that stay together. If you look at the statistics and surveys out there, couples are divided up into one of three camps. Camp one, which is, and literally they're divided up 33%, 33%, and 33%. So 33% of marriages that stay together can actually identify their marriage as working. 
and pretty much all that they had hoped for. How cool is that? Camp number two is, eh, it's okay. It's not the best thing I've ever wanted. It's all right. I, I mean, I guess I kind of settled. It's not horrible enough to break up. It's not as happy as I thought we'd be. We're kind of existing, kind of go out every now and again. Don't really have the deepest of conversations or connections, but it's okay. Not going anywhere. Then there's camp three. The last 33% of couples that stay together and they are miserable, completely physically and emotionally disconnected. And the top two reasons that those marriages stay together are the kids, the perception of we got to stay together for the kids or finances. So how might we as men, husbands, and fathers learn skills to improve the relationship with our wives? Because at the end of the day, guys, these are skills. And just to kind of give you a little teaser of my guest today, he was a naval F-14 pilot. You don't just get into an F-14 and fly it and wing it, be like, oh, there's tons of people that fly planes. I think I'll figure it out. I'll just get up in the air and I'll figure it out, right? But that's how we go about marriage, which is crazy. What we don't realize is the skills it takes to actually fly an F-14. There are skills within marriage. There's your self-care. There's the partnership, which is the business side of marriage, the finances, the roles, the chores. You do this, I do that. Then there's the friendship. That's the deep knowing of each other. Do we have things in common? Do we like to spend time together? At the end of the day, are you my buddy? And then there's lovers. You guys are all men. You know what that's all about. Underneath those four pillars, you have a foundation of communication. Communication involves tactical empathy. It involves psychological safety. It involves a deep understanding of it's okay for you to share your true authentic self without shame or judgment or anything like that. There's also labels and mirrors. All those things are so important when it comes to communication. And here's the thing. Most of us are winging it. We're jumping in that F-14 and we're like, ah, I'll just try to fly and see what happens. Right. And sometimes we crash into mountains, that kind of thing. So I've got a brand new resource for you guys. Actually, it's not brand new anymore, but if you go to the homepage, gooddadproject.com right there in the top, you'll see 21 days to an extraordinary marriage. It's a free resource. It's totally free. I don't want a thing from you. It's a email series, 15 emails over 21 days. And what I do in those email series is I give you three skills on communication and connection that you can literally use. And then I give you three challenges that are fun to actually go do with your wife. The only thing I do ask of you is that you hit the reply button to one of those emails and just let me know how things are going because there isn't a day that goes by that I don't get three to 15 emails in my inbox of you guys sharing where you guys are at and how things are working out. So go check that out. But I'm not going to talk anymore because I want to introduce our epic guest today. And his name is John Ramstead. And he's been married for 31 years. I bet this man's got a thing or two, a lesson or two on what it means to be married. And I can't wait for him to share. He's got three boys, 23, 21, and 17, and one three-year-old grandson. He started his career as a Navy F-14 pilot and then spent 25 years as an entrepreneur, nearly losing his family in the process. And in 2011, man, everything changed when he had an accident that put him under hospital care for 20 months and 23 surgeries. Just think about that for a second. Almost two years, hospital care and 23 surgeries. That is when John learned how to make the important things in his life important. This transformed his dysfunctional family into a place of love, joy, and fulfillment. He even wrote a book called On Purpose, With Purpose, 
And it's about his journey from smoldering discontent to having a life fully alive with relationships better than what he could have ever imagined. So I'm really excited to have John on today. John, what's up, man? It's good to see you. You too, Larry. Good to see you again, man. You are looking good. And I, I love the Dad Edge Alliance and just even how you open, just I think realizing that, you know what, if you're not where you want to be, you're not, marriage isn't awesome. A, you're not alone. And B, there's other people out there that have figured it out, learned those skills, and also put in the work to just make it a little bit better and a little bit better. Because, you know, I I was not in that top bucket you described before the accident. I was that guy like, uh, like I would have never gotten divorced. Maybe we were headed in that direction, but things were not good. I mean, at all. And they got gooder. And gooder's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> gooder is awesome. Gooder's man. awesome. Yeah. Can you share with us, Ed, I didn't expect to start this way, but but I'm curious after what you just talked about, when you say things were not good, did you know at the time they weren't good or was it just an, an identifiable place where you're like, well, we're married. So, you know, that's this kind of just how marriage is, right? Or did you know that things were not good? You didn't like it. It had slowly morphed into something that was not enjoyable. Like, you know, you think of an airplane, right? You know, I talk about in the book, True North. You know, if I'm flying from here, you know, from LA to New York City, and I'm off by one or two degrees, I can enter up hundreds of miles away from New York City and run out of gas. And I think what happened with Don and I in the beginning, we were in sync. We were, you said communication is the foundation. That had broken down. I also think self-talk. I think there's a, if your listeners have not read a book called Leadership and Self-Deception, it's about how we deceive ourselves with what we're, you know, seeing. And I would take things my wife would do as proof that she's not a good person. She doesn't care. She doesn't appreciate the work that I'm putting in. And I had gotten resentful, Larry. And I felt like I'm putting in all the work. She's a stay-at-home mom. She's literally living her dream. She is happy. And I felt like the kids were getting all the attention, not me, but I deserve the attention because I'm providing all this for her. You can just see it, it wasn't a very mature place. And it just led to, I don't know, it just, I think I was a majority of the contributor looking back. I just have to own it. I'm creating a negative environment at home. There's times I didn't even want to come home after a you know 12 hour day because I knew it was going to be an argument Usually it was something I was looking for, but wouldn't admit I was looking for, if that makes sense. That's where we were. That was the place, you know, and she had had an awesome day with the kids, went to the science museum, cooked dinner, and here I am coming home tired and grumpy. And, you know, so that's pretty much where we were at. I think you just illustrated like a, you know, a lot of how men perceive marriages because, man, I know I was in that place. I remember that was some of our biggest fights in the beginning, especially when my wife started staying home. I'm like, like I would, <laughs> I'm sure you probably have done this. And those of you guys in the audience, you probably are just shaking your head and be like, Oh yeah, I've asked that question too. I come home, the house would be like just a crazy, like just stuff everywhere. Right. And I'd be like, uh, what'd you do today? Yeah. And, and no food's <laughs> ready. So you're like, Oh, I yeah. have to pay for takeout again. Yeah. I had a busy day and, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure I said something that did not help the situation. Right. You know, Hey, real quick, just a quick segue. <laughs> Let's mess with some of these young bucks out there. Right. I've been married for 18 years. You've been married for 31. If you've been married for any amount of time and your wife is going to stay home or she has stayed home, 
don't do that. <laughs> well, let me share this. My son got a girl pregnant in high school. And so our grandson is my 21 year old son. And we watch him two weeks out of the month. And two weeks, like two full weeks. Yeah. And then his other set of grandparents watch him the other two weeks. Um, what? Yeah. Because are you guys adopting? Because are you, are you adopting? I got four kids that if you want to see them for two weeks, <laughs> yeah. Well, chip see, them up it was a crazy set of circumstances. We weren't sure. How about this? Michael's at college out of state on a full scholarship. It was okay. really the only way at the time he could go to college. And my grandson's mom got into uh, CU Boulder, but she had to work full time. So she was in an apartment with three roommates. So we just said, we'll okay. watch him. But here's the deal. Look, I have a three-year-old here every two weeks. Do you know during right. those two weeks, because I'm home, right? It's COVID. So I'm sitting yeah. in my apartment. I get to see this firsthand. It is virtually impossible for my wife, who's kind of my, you know, she's my general manager, to do anything to help me when he is here. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize the constant, it is constant, perpetual motion. Play with me, feed me, yeah. watch me, change me. I mean, she might be able to get an hour's worth of something done when he has a nap, which has gotten shorter and shorter. And I actually, I was thinking, we were talking about this. I was looking back. I said, you know, when you had three of them, right? When they were six, five, and one, like, how did you get anything done? She goes, well, I didn't. <laughs> and you never understood it because you just thought right. it, you, you saw them in the evening when they were kind of winding down. So, yeah, I think maybe that's just a good reminder to people is if you got little kids at home, trust me, if your wife has anything done during the day, you should seriously affirm her and celebrate with her. Trust me. Oh, dude, you're not kidding. I think most guys, again, I'm, this is not to downplay guys because I think if you really don't know how much work these little human beings are, your perception of it is like, oh my gosh, like I just got done work. There's so much work, dude. And you come home and you're like, and all I want is a little bit of peace, just a little bit, maybe like some food. Like it doesn't even have to be like fancy food, be like mac and cheese for all I care, but it's done. I don't have to worry about it. And then you look at your wife, like, did you even do anything today? Right. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing is, is we have a five-year-old right now. And when he's not in school, he, he goes to school Monday through Friday. But on days that he doesn't go to school, I mean, it is constant. It's kind of like family guy. It's like, mommy, mom, mom, dad, mom, mom. Yeah, it's never ending. <laughs> well, the two is guys, right? I think guys tend to live in these little boxes. Yeah. And women live in everything is all in the same room. So we come home and we make a comment about the house. We make a comment about dinner not being ready. Well, that all happened in the family room. And now finally kids are in bed and you're up in the bedroom and you've closed all the doors between here and the family room. Everything's this big room for her. And then you're like, hey, baby. And she's like, are you serious right now? <laughs> and then you get all offended, right? And then it just kind of doubles down on your negative mm -hmm. attitude. And guess what? What I realized, though, in hindsight is not understanding those dynamics. I'm the one that was creating the tension. Yeah. And I had power if I was actually going to be a little bit more mature and a little bit more engaged, a little bit more understanding. And also that self-deception realized when I was what he calls in this book called in the box. That's when I actually used those elements of the narrative to actually tell me a story that kind of was in alignment with how I was looking at my wife at the time, which wasn't the best. And I had to get out of the box. But when I learned how to get out of the box, so to speak, man, 
especially after. I think, honestly, if the accident happened, Larry, my wife and I have actually talked about this. I don't know if we'd be married today because this accident forced me to actually really look at who I was, what was important and what I really wanted. Did I want to be the divorced guy? And no, and I'm not tuning anybody out there that's gotten divorces. I have a lot of my friends that tried hard. And, but for me, I'm like, okay, I'm, that's the path I'm heading on. Is that where I want to end up? No. And do I want it to be a marriage that's on life support? Like you said, because of, you know, appearances with the kids to have a safe place. The answer was no. So, and today our marriage is, I mean, we walk down the street holding hands. We sit there and talk about, you know, as soon as we're empty nesters, like Donna wants to buy a Airstream travel trailer and travel all up and down the East Coast. Now, I know for a fact, a few years ago, the thought of being with my wife in a trailer for a month, I would have been like, pass. I'm just being honest. Today, like that totally lights me up. Like, I can't wait to go spend a month with my wife in a Airstream traveling up and down the East coast, visiting all of our friends. That's awesome. What a huge transformation from where you guys were, you know, and let's talk about the accident that you were in. I want to get to that here in a second, but before we get into the accident and then how that transformation happened to you and then how things changed in your life and marriage, I want to talk just a little bit about your career as a Naval pilot flying F-14s. Talk to us about how that even started. Oh, man. So I was in Navy ROTC. I always wanted to be in the Navy. My dad had fought in the Navy in World War II. My grandpa came here in 1913 from Norway, could barely speak English, and enlisted to fight for the Army in World War I. And that always blew my mind that somebody who just came here wanted to serve our country. Like he still could barely speak English. And so I'm in ROTC. 1986, Top Gun comes out. I was about to go back to college as a junior. Junior year, you actually put down your selection sheet. Do you want to go aviation, surface, submarines, special warfare, you know, SEALs or, you know, other choices. And I was an engineer and I, I was actually going to go submarines, even though it would always been my dream since a kid to be a pilot. And I watched the movie Top Gun and I walked out of that movie so fired up, but also kind of devastated because what I saw on the screen, I because where my self-image was, I'm like, I could never do that. So I went back to college. I didn't even apply for aviation, by the way. And then I spent a month on a submarine with the Navy, you know, during college. And I'm like, oh, what the heck was I thinking? This is not for me. And I actually went and talked to my dad and some other folks. And what I decided, it was interesting at the time. I had this dream that forced me to change how I saw myself, my identity. And that was hard. And I had kind of given up on it. And me and my dad were talking. He's like, you know what? You can either bet on yourself and pursue this dream. And if you fail, you're going to, you know, guess what? It's going to be what it is. But if you give up on yourself, that's going to start defining how you make decisions in the future, but it's up to you. What do you want to do? Wise man, my dad. So I actually went back and was able to get into flight school and went down there. And we were told the time because of Top Gun, one out of every 10,000 people is even going to get a jet, period. Not just the F-14, but any jet. Now, I don't know if that was true or not, but it's kind of scared the wadden out of me. And I was sharing my concerns with my dad. My dad was just this amazing mentor to me. And I said, dad, what do you think? I mean, like, I don't want to fly helicopters. You know, a good friend of our family died flying helicopters in the military and I didn't want to die. So he goes, I tell you what, when you get down there to flight school, this is some of the best advice I ever got. There's going to be one student that every single person is talking about, the ace of the base. And you need to find them 
buy him a beer and just say, what are you doing that's different than everybody else? And when I got down there, there was one student and my dad said, you know, you're not competing with him because he's ahead of you, right? Each class competes separately. His name was John Foster. And I got to know him and I said, let's go have a beer. And we actually became great friends. And his approach to his, you know, we don't have time to dig into it, but his mindset, how we studied his like philosophy was so out there, seriously, which is why it was working. And he not only shared with me everything that he was doing, because I really think people want to help, but then he held me accountable. Like my wife came down once to surprise me and went to the bar where everybody hangs out on Friday night and I wasn't there because I was at home studying because I hadn't done what I was supposed to do on Friday before I could go out to the bar. I hadn't finished it yet. And I ended up graduating number one and I got to choose the airplane that I wanted to fly. I actually beat John's grades and he totally celebrated with me. I mean, it was like, it was, but here's what that taught me, Larry, right? Whether I want to be an amazing father or husband or business person or whatever it is, my whole life has been defined by finding people that have the fruit on their tree that I want to have and just asking them if they would share with me, would they mentor me? Could I learn from them? And except for a very rare exception, I mean, you said in your intro, right? You have Matthew McConaughey, right? Look at kind of star he is, but I'm guessing you reached out to him and he wants to come on your show and have a conversation that's going to help people and share things that he knows is going to make people's lives better. And I really think that, you know, that's where people come from. They have big hearts, they want to help, and they like to have good relationships. And that's actually how I see the world, whoever's sitting across from me. But that's how the whole thing started. And then I got to tell you, man, flying in the Navy from primary flight training through then learning how to fly a jet. And then I had to learn how to land on an aircraft carrier. And then I had to learn how to do air combat and bombing and air to ground strafing. I mean, it was awesome. But every single flight, the environment that you were in, if you made a mistake, every single flight could be your last flight. If you got what's called a down, which is failing a flight, you might get one retake or you might not. If you got a retake and passed, if anything happened after that, you're done. And so in advanced jet training, I got a down. It was, it shocked me to the core because I worked so hard to prepare in air to ground bombing. I passed my retake and, you know, clearly graduated, but, but it was interesting. You had this culture, everybody competed, right? Like for fighters, like in my class, there was 30 people that graduated. Like the, I don't even know how many people started. If you actually kind of back up the chain, because at every little wicket, 50 to 60% of people, there was attrition. But there's 30 people in my jet class and only two of us got fighter slots. Me and another guy, everybody else got anti-submarine or transport or things like that. But in this group, even though it was hyper-competitive, but it was also dangerous at that point, when I got my wings, Larry had already been to three funerals. That was pretty sobering. I'm just telling you, it's, it's an element of naval aviation that we don't really talk about it's also super dangerous. So we would sit down over a beer and just, we would all share, what's it like to fly with this instructor? We all wanted to help each other. I said, hey, I did this and I got fantastic grades because here's something somebody showed me and I worked on it and it really worked out well. So guys, if you have to do this, here's what I did. Oh yeah, and let me tell you about this and let me tell you about this. So it was this amazing culture where it was so competitive, but everybody actually, even if I didn't like you, per se, right? You weren't the first guy I'd come to and get a beer from. 
our class, maybe it was unique in our group, but we would sit down and share everything with each other. And I just felt like, you know what? That's the way life should be. We're all competing. But what if we all served each other and we cared about other people's success? And in doing that, guess what? People share with us and our life is better. And I've honestly tried to sow that worldview that a rising tide lifts all boats into how I've raised my kids since they were little guys, right? Because I didn't have this. One of the things we always said to our boys since they were kids is that, you know what? You guys are going to be competing to see who is best man in each other's weddings. Families forever, right? You guys are going to be best friends forever. And today, these my three boys at their ages are inseparable. My 23-year-old and 17-year-old were over last night for St. Patrick's Day. And they're sitting on the couch, absolutely just cracking up and sharing stories and talking about what's going on in their lives. And I just sit there as a dad, just like, this is awesome. Yeah, that's heaven for a parent to see that. Oh, totally. You know, cultivating like an environment like that where people are close. I think it'd be very, yeah. very hard on the opposite end of the spectrum where you have, you know, kids that don't speak to each other and there's that dysfunction that's a part of the family. Well, that's my family. My brother doesn't speak to me. My sister barely does. My neither of those two really speak to mom. But that's what kind of the environment I grew up in. And I think because I had that, I wanted to make sure that that was not my family. Yeah. So we're going to break this yeah. trend because that was definitely a generational thing in my family. Well, good for you. I mean, because we we do one of two things: we either continue the pattern or we break it. It's harder to break it. It's easy to, to keep it going because that's what we know. So good for you for doing that. It's part of the reason why I'm doing this work, you know, is to break the pattern that I was raised in, which obviously we won't get into that because this shows about your story, but I get it. You know, it's harder to break a pattern, but it's so much more enjoyable when it works out well, right? And yeah, you're reaping no benefits doubt. of that. I really want to get to what happened in 2011. Explain to us the accident. So I've been... Uh, working my way up in business to, you know, fortune 100 companies. And it was just, I wanted to build something again and build my own team. So I started a company in 2011 and through this got introduced to somebody who was on the board of family talk, which was a new nonprofit that Dr. James Dobson had started. Well, I, I didn't know, but I got invited to a retreat that he was hosting with just the board. And there were some neat people on the board up in great falls, Montana. So I flew up there for this small retreat on Thursday and Friday. We're supposed to go horseback riding to the back of the property to have lunch and get to know each other better. So I'm the first one saddled on this horse. And if anybody's listening is a horse person, there's a picture right after I got saddled in this horse has his chin tucked down and his ears like literally flat back. Like this cat did not like me. And I was clueless. I'm from Minnesota. I never really ridden, you know, I've done trail rides, right? All of a sudden, this horse starts trotting out into this open area, and I'm bouncing along like crazy. Right? This is not comfortable. But then all of a sudden, he bolts, and he takes off, does a 90-degree turn, and I'm laying flat on his back, and his rump is pounding me in the shoulder blades, and I'm scared to death. I'm going to flip off the back of this horse, get kicked in the head, and die. I was convinced. So I did the one thing I could think to do, and that is to squeeze my legs as hard as I can. Now, I'm a dude, so I did not read the owner's manual. What I did not know is I'm telling that horse to go full speed. That is the signal, squeezing with your legs for a trained horse. Turned out this was a trained horse that had gotten in the trail riding group by accident. And this dude found another gear. 
I mean, he is flat out. I have never been on a horse running. I mean, you're what your head is maybe 15 feet in the air and it is, I mean, it was, I've been supersonic. I've done low levels in combat. I've nothing prepared me for this Larry. I'll tell you that I look ahead there's a fence line all the way along my right-hand side, about 80 yards down at the end of it. And we're heading straight toward it was these series of paddocks. And all this is made of these three inch rolled steel beams. And it was clear to the left. So I grabbed the left rein and I yank on the rein to get him to turn on the, but then I'll slow him down. And he pulls his head back. Doesn't even break stride. Doesn't turn and accelerates. I'm like, seriously, this is not computing. I mean, I felt like incredulous. I grab the rein, I pull harder. He yanks his head back, finds another gear and doesn't turn. And I'm freaking out. I have never lost it mentally with everything that I've done in combat, being shot at, uh, <laughs> raising teenagers, right? <laughs> Nothing prepared me for that moment right there. And spinning out of control, like I got to jump off this horse. If I jump off my horse, I'm going to break my neck. If I break my neck, I'm going to die. I don't want to like literally just spun out of control until this like moment. I don't know if you guys have ever had that, you know, us guys who are adrenaline junkies, you know, ever had that when time slows down, that's actually caused by massive adrenaline. But I had this moment of clarity and I remember thinking to myself very clearly, this is not going to end well. That's how I said it to myself. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up on the ground. Horse at a full gallop came into the fence, dropped his butt, and he bucked so hard he flipped over. And he landed on the ground on his side backwards and slammed into the fence rump first. And he actually had a cut on his rump and on his forehead. So maybe he hit the fence and slid around. I don't know. But when he did that, I went Superman head first into that first steel beam. Oh, my gosh, man. It crushed all up here. You can see it on video. But all this was caved in. This has all been rebuilt with titanium this whole side of my skull. I broke every bone in my skull, except for my jaw and my right cheekbone. I lost eight teeth were broken. I broke my neck high up at C2 and C4. I completely shattered my shoulder, ripped off almost every tendon, broke the bones. And then to add insult to injury, the next bar down, Larry hit me in the chest and I caved in the left side of my chest, broke all the ribs. And one of the broken ribs went in and punctured my left lung it was not good so i wake up on the ground so you actually you were conscious after this yeah yeah so i yeah that was kind of the very memorable part i'll tell you that because i'm laying there and i could feel people holding me down my head my shoulders and my hips i wake up into this pain that is beyond anything i could even you know, hope to even think of, you know, that saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. He did that it, day. Right. Well, it's not true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. That is not, I mean, this was beyond my breaking point, beyond my panic point, the pain, the panic, the fear, my chest had just been caved in. I, I couldn't breathe. And then all of a sudden one of the guys said, I just, John, I just saw, and I was, I didn't know this. I was screaming and yelling and writhing around. And this is all cut open. You know, head wounds aren't pretty. I mean, the poor people there, right. I didn't even know I was screaming and yelling and writhing around. I was trying to just get away from the paint. I was all in my head at this point. Um, but totally conscious. I could see everybody, hear everybody. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys said, you re relaxed so completely. It looked like you were sinking into the ground. But it was in that moment, Larry, I was in God's presence. He was standing right next to me. 
and the love that was pouring them off for him. It was almost like you see a science fiction movie and you have like this energy beacon that's like pulsing light. That's what it was, but it was pulsing energy, but it had a physical weight to it. Like it was washing over my body. Like when you're at the ocean and the beach and the waves are coming in, like washing over your body, it had a physical presence to it. And it was like the fabric of the universe. But the instant that I felt it, it was so personal between God and me and unconditional. I remember, and I didn't know how bad my body was crushed laying there. The first thought I had was, I'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this. Just curious, did you see what the presence looked like or was it a feeling? You know what? Because my forehead was all split open. They had a cloth over my eyes. So I couldn't see him with my eyes. But have you ever been there like in bed and somebody comes in and they're, you know, like your wife might come in at night if you go to bed a little bit early just to give you a kiss goodnight and she's standing there. No, there's a presence there. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. So I didn't get to see him. I could tell he was there. I could kind of see part of it, but it was like just outside of my field of view. But yeah, it wasn't like, you know, this glowing figure standing there that I got to lock eyes with. And then um, all, as I felt that love washing over me, all the pain and the panic and the fear was completely gone. That's why I relaxed. And then he spoke to me as a voice that came from everywhere and nowhere. And he said, all things work together for those that love the Lord. Now, those out there that are, you know, Christians and read the Bible know that comes from Romans. I had no idea that came from Romans at the time, Larry. I didn't know. That's not kind of not where my life was. We were kind of Christmas Easter folks kind of deal, right? <laughs> Creasters. We were Creasters. Uh, <laughs> we had to get the pictures. Um, and then he said, John, I'm going to heal you. Now, think about this, how profound this was for me afterwards, that the God of the universe actually cared about me, knew me, came down and told me that he was going to heal me. And then he said, the Lord give it, the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as soon as he said that, I knew with total certainty, my left eye was blind. And it is permanently. All the bones behind the eye socket where it hit the fence shattered and the broken bones severed the optic nerve. So my left eye is not connected to my brain. Then I woke up and just said, hey, God's here. You don't have to worry. It's going to be okay. And then I get to the hospital. And here's where this really affects things, though. I get to the hospital, my kids come up, Donna's told I'm probably not going to make it. My kids are only there for about a day and a half because they know with a brain injury, it gets worse. It, it's like this weird thing, like you're okay for about 48 hours and then you go drop off a cliff because the brain swells actually really slowly. So they only wanted my kids to be up there for a little bit. Like I would, my kids still talk about it. I would hold my breath to set off all the alarms in the room and then the nurse would come running in. And I would start cracking up. And then the boys thought that was hilarious. Nurse, not so much. Now, I had post-traumatic amnesia. I actually don't remember doing this. So I was in the bed trying to, you know, I didn't want my kids to feel afraid about dad because it didn't look good, to tell you that. I mean, just physically. But right after they left, a friend of ours came up and drove them from Montana back down to Denver. It really got bad. And the neurosurgeon comes in and says, we need to take off John's skull and fix all this stuff. The dirt around my brain was lacerated. The base of my skull was, I mean, there was stuff in my brain. I mean, the whole thing was a train wreck. Like they didn't think I was going to make it right. But we got to give this a shot. And he's talking to my wife, telling her that, you know, we got to do this craniotomy. Chances of survival, eh, not bad. Chances of him being the person you remember, not good. And then he looked at my wife and said, do you have a will? And really, do you have a living will? 
And we had actually redone our estate plan. And we were supposed to sign these docs when I got back from this trip. And Donna told him that. And he goes, listen, we can wait till the morning, no longer. Can you call your attorney and get that FedExed up here immediately? Because I really want to have that signed before we go into this surgery. I'm like, oh, man, it got real. So they left the room. So even though I was in God's presence, which was new for me, I heard this conversation, but here's what I was convinced of, Larry, is next weekend was my funeral. That's the dominant thought I had. So I started playing the tape, right? And what I realized was at the front of the church, it doesn't matter what kind of life you had, everybody's going to say nice stuff because that's what you do. But what do they say when they're rooting around in the back afterwards for the fried chicken and potato salad? And I started thinking about, hey, is Donna going to be okay? My first thought was money right? What I've saved, my life insurance, what I was thinking about was an inheritance, right? That's kind of always been my focus also in business. And I realized, you know, she's in good shape and are my kids going to be okay? But then, you know what? I started thinking about a different concept and that was legacy. And I was thinking, Larry, what have I left in my boys? What have I left in my wife? What have I left in the world, I said, if I lived a life, so the use of my life would outlive my life through my kids, through my wife, through my friends, through my business. And buddy, I got to tell you, I was convicted big time. I realized that if you knew me back then and it was two years later in my name, if it came up in conversation, I'm like, man, he was a good guy. He worked hard. You know, he was on all these boards. He was a doer. You know, what a bummer. What a tragedy. I wonder how his wife's doing. Well, anyway, hey, how's your world? How's your business? How are your kids? Right. And I realized I had this second chance. I was given this second chance to completely rewrite my script. And honestly, I felt like I had these handcuffs on before and I could give you a million excuses, but I did not not only realize that I had this second chance. I'd had this second chance every day of my life. And I could tell you the why I, the second chance didn't exist but that was false. And I got to rewrite my script. And the thing that I, well, you know where I started for me is I actually sat down and I told you how rotten things were with my marriage. I said, okay, what's the obituary if I had died? If I was watching from heaven and I watched my wife give it, you know, with authenticity, like real, that man, I would feel like, you know what I did. I lived that life. I ran the race strong. Right? I lived that life that outlives my life. And I wrote the obituary that I would love to have heard her say. And I have never, Larry, shared that with her. But I've shared it with two of my closest friends who are my wingmen. And I've given them permission to challenge me on any part of it at any time. Like one of the things that I wanted her to be able to say at my funeral is that she felt like the most loved woman in the world. And my buddy called me up this couple weeks ago. He's like, hey. Don't I feel like the most loved woman today? I'm like, oh, dude, why'd you call today? Like, no, she, let me call you back. Like I had to go apologize and grovel and no, seriously. Like I, I'd been short and I got frustrated, right? She didn't feel loved that day. But I also wrote an obituary, like, what do I want each one of my boys to say? They're all different. They're all unique. They all have different personalities. And guess what? I said, okay, that is the person that started the process to give me something to shoot for. And I didn't know what success looked like as a dad or as a husband, honestly, until I'd done this. For me, like, how do you define success as a, you know, a dad? Well, I don't know. Well, I think it's different for each kid. But I think just like we do in business, like how much time do we sit and spend 
to define success in our business, in our career, on a sports team. I had never sat down before and said, this is what it looks like to be a good dad for Michael. This is what it looks like to be a great, you know, good dad for John, because they're different. And I got to tell you, that started a process that started to transform everything because I realized I had to become a different person. I had to become a better version of myself to be that person for them. And it was this process that was a long process that is the reason that I even wrote this book because where I got to was a place I never thought I could, which is amazing. A life fully alive, a 10 out of 10 life. And I didn't think that was even accessible before this accident. Dude, I love your story, man. A couple of quick reflections back to you. Yeah. Number one, most of us never get to write our own eulogy. And that's a very powerful thing because most of us, have we we think about today think about tomorrow the weekend maybe if we're lucky we're thinking a month out maybe right maybe and the eulogy you're right it's an exercise it's something that i honestly think every man should do and do it as quickly as you possibly can because that is beginning with the end in mind and i love that you said legacy is forever we actually have a challenge coin for guys in our dad edge mastermind the alliance mm. mastermind the front, you know, obviously says Dad Edge Alliance and the back as legacy is forever. That is so important because the other thing that you mentioned too is about work, defining success at work. And would our eulogy be like, yeah, he worked really hard, worked really hard hours, made a lot of money. And yeah, we had great vacations. Woo-hoo. We had great vacations. <laughs> what I can tell you is that, man, I've had the distinct honor of listening to hundreds of men's eulogies because when they come and do life with us in dad edge, that's one of the exercises we encourage them. We don't require it, but we encourage them to do it. And we've heard hundreds of them. And I've never seen a dry eye when a man has read his own eulogy. And sometimes he'll do it as his son is reading it, his daughter's reading it, a friend is reading it or his wife. And there's never one bit in there about how many hours he worked or how successful he was, or what his title was, or what kind of car he drove. It had everything to do with the connections, the relationships, and exactly what you said, the legacy, but no materialistic legacy is like, how did this person imprint my life and the lives of others? And the other thing I want to reflect back to you as well is you could have gone either way with your attitude towards this recovery, you know, and you could still go either way with recovering from this. Life isn't fair. Why did this have to happen to me? Yet you're taking this as a moment of strength. I'm not saying that every day is easy, but a moment of strength where like, you know what, from now on, things are going to be different. I'm going to be more intentional. Your book, you know, purpose. It's going to be more purposeful. It's going to be more intentional. The follow-up question, I'm so curious about this. You have three sons. I have four. And let's talk to the men with daughters too, right? Let's not leave them out. You said something there that was really, really important. And that is all three of them are totally different and need different things from me. Mm -hmm. How do I love, you know, your 21 year old, your 23 year old, you know, this, I think 17, correct? Correct. Yep. So I'm thinking about this, like Ethan, Mason, Lawson, Colton, my four boys. And as you said that, I was like, man, all my boys are totally different. How I show up for Ethan is different. How I show up for Mason. How I show up for Lawson is different than Colton. So can you give us an example of 
things that you do. Like if I'm going to love this boy, here's what that looks like. Specifically, it is not a blanket statement. I don't go about this. Hey, they're all the same. They're all boys. Just same thing. But give us an example of the purposeful love and connection that you have with one of them. Yeah. How you go about it. And, And let me start with this. I really think though, as a dad, we need to slow down individually and understand how we're wired or how God wired you. That level of self-awareness, understanding my own, maybe limiting beliefs, my mindsets, where I'm coming from, things that have made me angry, because that's where I damaged a lot. We can maybe talk about that too, if we have time, how I repaired all that. But I had to understand myself. And in doing so, that helped me see my each one of my kids more clearly. Because it's pretty easy to kind of lump them into, you know, this is how I interact with them. Like my youngest son, I'm an engineering mind, transactional kind of guy. He is the most relationally oriented person I've ever met. His analytical skills, how he thinks about things are so different to me that I thought he was faking certain things to get out of work. What I realized was that's not how his brain worked, like putting together something, like assembling something from Ikea, literally his brain would go into vapor lock. I have to sit down with him and do it step by step, but the guy's brilliant at other areas. But for him, it's words of affirmation. That's his love language. And if I start out not complimenting, but actually affirming a work habit, a character trait, if I look at his grades and he's got three B's and three A's, and I notice that one B went from a B to a B plus, it's not where I want it. But if I affirm the fact that he worked hard on English and he got it from a B to a B plus, and I ask him what he did and how he worked with his teacher, now we're sitting down and getting into a conversation and I can link it back to, hey, you said your goals were to have straight A's this semester. What can we do to move the other ones up? In the past, I would just look at it and say, dude, this is not okay. You know, you have a week to fix this or you're grounded. Because guess what? With John, the oldest son, he wanted goals set. He wanted me to work with him on, hold him accountable on stuff like that. For him, that worked. Oh, no worries, dad. Hey, I mean, he didn't take it as an insult that I'm not good enough or I can't live up to a standard. He saw it as me holding him accountable to goals. And he responded to that the way I would, because that's kind of how I'm wired. And then my middle son, much more introverted. The bookends, the oldest and youngest have these massive social networks and friends, right? They're very gregarious. Michael is more of an introvert. He has a very small number of very close friends. He's one of the funniest guys ever, but getting him to open up. So here's something I found when he's home, Larry, kind of stumbled on this. I couldn't get him to talk to me. He was the one that frustrated me the most. And he and I always had this contentious relationship prior to the accident, even afterwards get angry, argue. So I went downstairs and I wanted to talk to him and he just didn't say a word. And we're sitting there, he was playing some video game. And I just said, Hey, what, you know what? That was cool. Why'd you do that? Hey, what does this mean on the screen? All of a sudden he starts sharing with me all of his strategy. It was this very complex shooter game thing, but he started sharing with me all of his strategy and what this is. And then he got this mod and like, he's proud of this work that he's done in the video game, honestly. And I'm like, well, whatever. That was kind of my first reaction, right? Is, but then I realized he's talking with me. And then I started weaving in questions. Hey, what about this? You know, and also he's the guy faced with, you know, this is 
you know, coming up right three years ago, right? He's faced with as a teenager being a dad. We had to walk through this whole process together. You know, it was hard. He didn't know how to talk about it. He's 17 years old. How do you talk about the fact that your life is not what you were expecting ever, right? And then we, I said, hey, how you feeling? If I just asked him that out of the gate, it'd be like, no, I'm, I'm good. But once we got the conversation going, I don't need to have that kind of, you know, get some of that, you know, kind of flow going with the other boys. So everybody is totally different. They have different values. They have different personalities. They have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think the more that we understand ourselves, that allows us to understand our kids and then work with them in a way that best serves them, not best serves me. And that's how I try to approach it. I love how you approach it with questions. You know, you come in with what we call in our mastermind approach, the conversation or a situation with curiosity and appreciation versus like expectation and agenda, mm-hmm. which it sounds like I'm guilty of that too. Actually, my 13 year old is the one who I have a hard time with. To be honest, I think it's because we're a lot alike. You know, we're both competitive. We're both strong willed. We can be stubborn, but man, like challenge us to do something and we will do it and we won't give in. We won't give up. And I love that about him, but it's also like, buddy, those two personalities will sometimes butt heads. And I, even as you say that, and I'm a big proponent of questions, but for him, like my default is I need to tell him, I need to give him information. I need to connect with him. And even as you're saying that, I'm like, no, 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 no. I need to ask more questions. I need to do exactly what I always say that I need to do that I'm actually pretty good at with the other three boys, which is be curious and appreciative, right? Yeah, I think we we have to shift from a place of judgment because I know that's where I came from when they didn't do something. Well, like they clean the kitchen and the kitchen's really not done well, right? There's a judgment there. And then what happens is there's a thought that's not done well, they're lazy. That leads to a feeling, could be anger, frustration, disappointment, that feeling will color my language, you know, the words I use, my body language, my tone. And that is, comes across crystal clear. Even if I say, hey, great job, but I say it kind of sarcastically. Well, guess what? To a 13-year-old from dad, that hurts. That was my MO, dude. And I know I was causing damage. And I would just share with everybody out there, as I became a coach, because coaching was so pivotal in my journey, and it's a huge part of what I put together in this book, learning how to ask questions, learning how to listen, learning how to take what somebody shares with you and then reframe it and feed it back to them so they can hear their own words. And doing it from a place of curiosity, just like you said, Larry, and not a place of judgment. That was something I had to really work hard on is to shift my mindset of one of being, I didn't realize how judgmental I was. I'm still working on it to this day. It's, I have not made that but I had to figure out, hey, what are some tools that I have to equip myself with? I think that's huge. I talk about that when I write about mindset and work with people to switch from that judgment place and how to recognize it over to curiosity. But if your folks can just read some books on coaching and how to listen better and ask better questions, just like you're talking about, I truly believe that transformed my relationship with my kids. I went from on the track, even though it's not where I wanted to be, to being in, you know, I never really had even a relationship with my parents until I was way into adulthood. 
and it's still a place of judgment. If you go there, you know, you're going to get judged. There's going to be a little comment that's just like, ah, why do I even call them? Right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know, you know, but somebody out there might be able to relate to that. But anyway, can I share it? Do I got time to share an example real quick? Sure. So my middle son, Michael, this is back when he was 16, 15. I'm walking through the family room and I see the lawn is long. And I look at Michael and I said, Michael, I need you to mow the lawn today. And he looks up at me and goes, uh, no, that's it. So here's a military guy walking through the family room, right? What happens? Like, dude, you do not talk to your dad like that. That is disrespectful. What happens is I immediately went to full anger. That was my habit at the time. I even might've gone past habit. So out of that anger, we did not have a calm conversation about the lawn. I started yelling at my son, telling him how ingrateful he is, all the stuff we provide for him. He plays hockey, go mow the flipping lawn. And he went and mowed the lawn. So I got the lawn mowed. Did I win? No. Did not win. <laughs> now, what I realized was, though, honestly, I think God really put this on my heart, is, dude, you guys do not have a good relationship. Pretty obvious, right? We're just constantly yelling at each other. And he said some nasty things to me, which made it worse, right? Yeah. When you get anger going, what happens is epinephrine actually, because I've studied this, floods the brain. Your cognitive ability can be reduced by 70% or greater. So I just got stupid. I allowed Amazing. myself to get stupid. I had a big brain and now I have a pea-sized brain. So two stupid people with pea-sized brain having a high-volume conversation, is anything good going to come out of that? Mm-mm. No, and he's 16 or 15 years old. I can't expect him to regulate his epinephrine and his anger. I'm the adult in the room. And if I said, you make me mad, because I have said that to my kids, think about what we're really saying there is I am seeding thoughts, my feelings, and my actions to not only another human, but somebody who's two years old, five years old, 15 years old. When I say that, What that says is I am not willing to take personal responsibility as a man for my behaviors, my feelings, and my actions. In that place, you will never, I realized I was never going to get better. So I'm like, okay, I want to have an amazing relationship with Michael. And this was hard. So what happens is there's an event in your life. Out of an event, you have a thought. That thought leads to a feeling. That feeling leads to an action. That action leads to an outcome. And I said, okay, it's going to happen again. He's going to say no. When he says no, how do, what do I want to think? Instead of that's disrespectful, you don't treat me like that. This, Larry, for me, this was hard to come up with. What I came up with after some struggle and wrote down was, this is an amazing opportunity for me to mentor my son. He's going to be soon be an adult and not be in my house. How do I want to feel instead of anger? I don't like feeling that angry in this. I knew this was a habit of mine. I wanted to feel unconditional love. I really wanted to get there. Man, that was hard to write down. Because that just felt wrong. Like somebody disrespects you and you just go over and hug them. But it's my son. Let's start here. How do I want to feel? What action do I want to take? Have a calm conversation. Well, it's two weeks later. We had this screaming match. I look out. Same thing. I'm, it was like almost like the same setup. I look out and realize the lawn needs to be mowed. And I said, Michael, I need you to mow the lawn. He didn't even look up from his phone this time. He just said no. So had that shouting match, it just made it worse. Because it had become a habit, I immediately felt that tightness in my chest and that anger boiling up. And what I realized is 
And this is why I wrote stuff down. I realized if I don't pre-experience that thought and that feeling, I will never, I do not have the ability to make the change in the moment because I'm on autopilot. But as soon as I felt that feeling, it was almost like this reminder, like, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity for me to mentor Michael, but I'm ticked off. Oh no, I got to love him unconditionally. I don't feel like loving him right now, but I'm gonna. So I had like this grimace on my face. I'm glad he couldn't see it, but I sat down calmly next to him and I asked him a question. And I said, Michael, when you said no, what did no mean? And he was totally confused. He actually put his phone down. He looks up and he goes, well, dad, I got two a day practices today. And I got this and I got this. And there's no way I come out and I'm like, oh, that's what you meant. He goes, duh. Like I almost went right to anger again, Larry. But I held myself. What that led was to this conversation. I said, Michael. I've noticed, you know, this is, you don't only just do this to me. Have you ever noticed, I do it with questions, that you can be really short and sarcastic with some of your friends, your coaches, your teachers. He goes, well, that's true. And do you have the amount of really close friends that you really want? Well, no, not really. Do you think there could be any link between how you communicate and the amount of friends you have? Well, we actually, I was surprised that we actually had this kind of conversation. I wasn't expecting it. He said, well, I, yeah, maybe, right? I don't think you really want to admit it in the moment. But then I told him, I said, Michael, here's the kind of relationship I want to have with you. I told him my goals. I want to be best friends our whole life. I want you to be able to come to me with anything, and we're not there right now. But I want to really start working on that. I think it's really important to tell people where you want to go. And he goes, well, Dad, I hate when you come up to me and just tell me to do something. You wouldn't like that either. I'm like, no, I could have gotten, you know, lectured him there, Larry, but I made a choice. I said, you know what? You're right. And I apologized to him full on. I said, you know what, dude, I did that. And that's not cool. And will you forgive me? Or when you can, if that hurt you, will just maybe in the future, will you work on, you know, forgiving me? And I said, Michael, I give you permission to hold me accountable to have a conversation with you. There's going to be important work that needs to be done around this house but I won't come up and just demand something unless it's truly urgent and we talk about it. He goes, fair enough. And I said, is there anything else that you want to share with me? And he shared some stuff that I needed to hear. And I said, Michael, in the future, when I ask you, how do you want me to ask you? He goes, dad, just ask me. Like, it's important. It needs to get done. When can you do it? And I said, okay, when can you get the lawn mode? He goes, tomorrow at nine. I'm like, dude, you sleep until two in the afternoon every weekend are you serious? You're going to really do it at nine? He goes, you got my word. I didn't think it was going to happen later. The next morning at nine o'clock, I heard the lawnmower and he mowed the lawn. And that was the start. That was the, honestly, the pivot point of me and Michael becoming very close because it was a year later that he got a classmate pregnant and he knew at his school, if he got somebody pregnant, he was going to get expelled. I mean, this was a life-changing event and he was able to come. And when he found all this out and figured out, he came to me and his mom and the only thing we knew to do, and when he was crying, we were crying. We threw our arms around him. We just told him we loved him. We're here every step of the way. We got your back. You're not in this alone. We will figure this out together. And that's what it's been the last three and a half years. I think if I had not laid that foundation, I don't think he'd be a father today. I think he would have made a very different decision because he didn't have a family that he trusted or he thought had his back. So that's how I've brought this into my kids. Dude, you have me all misty eyed over here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding uh, for good reason. 
No, his name's Michael. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Okay. You're illustrating a very similar relationship that I have with Mason, my 13 year old. And it sounds like your relationship and his relationship, your relationship and my relationship with mine is, is very similar, which the thing that I want to applaud you and I want to make sure that the audience heard was you were able to prepare yourself for an interaction like that, that the tightness in your chest was a trigger to be like, I need to love him unconditionally. And this is an opportunity for me to mentor him. I want to make sure everybody heard that because everybody's like, Oh, rise to the occasion, rise to the occasion. We don't do that. And you know that from all your military training, we don't rise to any occasion. We default to our training. We default to those. That's such a good point, right? I can say I'm going to rise to the occasion. And then the thing happens and you don't handle it well and you're right. beating yourself up. But guess what? It's because you haven't prepared for the occasion properly. Right. Exactly. And so you prepared, you were ready. Mm-hmm. You took that as an opportunity to deepen the relationship, to ask really curious questions. And then when you got the response that even kind of hits you in the feels a little bit like, Ooh, yep, you are correct. And that was probably very hard for you as a man to take ownership of that. But look what you did. You mentioned when you told the story, you didn't get the result that you wanted because you were having the exact same conversation and you yelled and you had a very different conversation. He held true to his word at 9 a.m. He was up mowing the grass. The other thing too, is you got very curious. You asked him, why aren't you going to cut the grass today? Because in his mind, just giving you a no made total sense to him. Cause he's like, what is this guy thinking? Like I got two a day practices. I'm exhausted. It's hot outside. It's this, it's that like, what, this is crazy. And that to him, that made total sense. And also made total sense to you to probably be like, dude, I provide for you play hockey. You do this, like, come on. But you both got curious, which helped elevate the relationship. The other thing you did there too, man, is I honestly think when you asked, what else do you want to tell me? You created this environment of psychological safety where maybe he didn't feel so safe telling you these things before. And then you created that environment where you showed proof of like, Hey, you can tell me something that probably doesn't feel so good. And what else do you have? And he was and able I, to and, share. And just before that, I told him he can hold me accountable. His yeah, dad. That's another one. Right. And he goes, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want Michael. I want us to have an amazing relationship that I believe set up because I got to tell you when my wife and I were in a bad spot, and I had to apologize for some stuff. And I said, hey, is there anything else? Her response there would be like, no, I'm good. But that wasn't true. It's, I don't want to share with you because it's not safe. It took me a while to realize that's why she wouldn't give me feedback. Yeah. Because I would turn it around even, you know, the next day or a couple of days later as a zinger. Man, what a, what a jack wagon I was, man. So... <laughs> I had a lot to work on. I'll tell you that, man. I'd hopefully give some people some hope. No, we all do. This was outstanding. We covered a lot in this show. And just to recap a few things, we covered, I don't think I know, one of the things that really came out with your career was you decided early on the things that brought you to life and the things that didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, Many people would be like, well, I'm on the sub, so I guess I'll just stay here. I don't like it, but I don't know what else to do. I'll just be complacent and stay here. You didn't. I would have succeeded professionally, but I knew I wouldn't have been excited or really happy. Right. It would have been intriguing and interesting, but it wouldn't have been, dude, like flying a fighter off a carrier, dude. Forget about it. It was pretty awesome. Pretty cool. You feel the need, the need for speed. I'm telling you, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, The other thing too was 
out of this tragedy and this accident came this interaction with God, this touch mm-hmm. point, right. Of unconditional love, you know, an amazing relationship with your wife, a story now that you can hang your hat on and, and literally post your flag in the ground saying this was the turning point and the eulogy too, beginning with the end in mind. What does the end of my life truly look like and how am I going to live that out? And then of course you wrapped it up with all these amazing stories of how you love each son individually. And then you gave a clear cut example of what it means to create psychological safety feedback, to be held accountable and to create an an amazing relationship to where then you were able to be there for your son three years later when he was probably at his most vulnerable. Right. So amazing journey, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, I think I just want to tell you, uh, my son's in college, right? Yeah. I called him last Saturday afternoon and he didn't notice it till 11 at night. And I could tell that he was out and had a few beers. He's 21 and he was in a bar and he knew he was kind of in that state. Do you know, he called me at like, what it was at 1030 at night. I was in bed. I answered the phone because it was Michael. He's like, oh my gosh, dad, I saw that we had a missed call. How are you? We talked for like 15 minutes. Like he stepped away from his friends in a bar because he saw I had a missed call to talk with his dad. I would have never done that in college. Yeah, man. Larry, I got to tell you, like for me, I'm going to bed. I'm like, okay, I hope somebody else is driving tonight. But other than that, I am feeling so good right now. And I got, that was, you know, I don't want him out drinking, but you know, I, I get it. I did it in college too. But the fact that he called me. It's pretty cool. I got to tell you, I was like almost in tears. I'm like, that boy loves me. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, who else calls her dad? But anyway, I got to tell you all this whole journey, it's taken a long time. My anger issues, I had to go to each one of my kids and apologize. I did individually because everyone was a different conversation. I got to tell you the accident, the pain that I was in, the surgeries, my life being radically felt like it was destroyed, trying to working hard. I was human, right? Trusting God, not being in pain constantly being, I had a severe brain injury. This was hard. I made it worse for a period of time. And I got to tell you, it was, they didn't even want to be in the room that I was in, Larry. So I just want to tell everybody listening, whatever your circumstances are, no matter how bad you think it is, your kids won't even talk to you. They won't even be in the room that you're in. Your wife would rather walk out the door than, you know, be, anywhere near you because that's where I was right today COVID was the biggest blessing that's ever happened to our family because I had all three of my boys my daughter-in-law Donna and our grandson under our roof for five months that's cool do you know we never had an argument there was zero strife every night we cooked together we played games we went on walks we watched movies and that doesn't happen when you have adult kids right and it was like, I remember my wife and I just sitting there on the couch one night and everybody's all there talking and they're all laughing. And we're just looking at each other like, like teary-eyed. This is our family. I would have never dreamed that was possible even a couple years prior. So I just want to give people hope that regardless of what it looks like, you can move toward and get that amazing marriage and relationship with your kids that maybe you lay in bed at night looking at the ceiling dreaming about. It's in front of you and let guys like Larry and being in the mastermind and help you get there. Amen to that, man. I want to make sure the men know how to find you, all your resources, your book in case they want to connect with you. So as far as links and best place to find John, where do we do that? 
Best place is beyondinfluence.com. And I love with my book coming out on purpose with purpose. It's not only a story of this whole journey, lots of stories about being a fighter pilot and business and my kids, but how I made all the changes every step of the way. So other people could get some of the results I have. And that's beyondinfluence.com forward slash book. And I'm on all the social media, just search John Ramstead. My son is also the same name. So if you look at somebody who looks in their 20s with red hair, that's not me. The other one is me. Uh, I'm the old guy with gray hair. So I would love to connect with you. Anybody that emails me, I get back to everybody personally and love to serve you or be useful to you any way that I can. Guys, not to worry. We're going to have all the links in the show notes for John, for his book. Quick, funny thing. So I founded Good Dad Project back in 2012. That was my very first tagline on purpose with purpose. So that was kind of cool. Like I just. No kidding. That's yeah, awesome. Just, it was just on purpose. With, I actually have it on the back of a shirt on purpose with purpose. But you can find everything over at gooddadproject.com forward slash Thursday 261 for this show. Again, gooddadproject.com forward slash Thursday 261. Now, I will say this, John. I usually end every show with Live Legendary. It's become a tagline of ours. But another one I haven't used for a while, and I think it's appropriate for this show, is Legacy is Forever, right? Legacy is Forever. Yep. It's what you leave in those people around you as you live your life. That's right. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. This was priceless. Absolutely much needed. Larry, thank you for what you're doing. You've taken your life and your time and your treasure and your honor to sow it into other, man, talk about a legacy. I mean, our company's named Beyond Influence. That's what you're doing. You're affecting men who are going to up-level their family, up-level their relationship with their kids that will have a generational impact. And you did that because you care about this. And you know what? What a great example. Thank you. Oh man. I'm honored for to even receive a compliment like that. Thank you so much. It came from a really dark place. Mm, I didn't have the physical tragedy you did, but you know, this whole thing got started in a dark place. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Thank you. You bet, man. Well, gentlemen, Hey, we're going to end it like this. Go out and live legendary because legacy is forever. Take care.